We're glad to see you out. We hope everybody got a sheet of paper now that's called the Gospel of Mark. And the theme of the Gospel of Mark is Christ the Servant, it says at the top. And tonight you see the verses we're going to study. If you want to turn in the Bible to that text or just follow those verses there, and then I'll be covering some other verses. And uh, what we're doing, for those of you that are new, is we are uh, studying the entire book of Mark this year. And uh, a little bit at a time, we're going to try to get through 29 verses tonight. Just an overview, not details. Then also we have on the back of your sheet notes from the Spurgeon Study Bible. Charles Spurgeon wrote a study Bible, and he makes some comments about some of these verses that are insightful. We'll read those when we get to them, and uh, let the Lord speak to us. Now, uh, we are in Mark chapter 9. And verses 1 through 29, and we're going to see three stories here in this portion of Scripture. The first story is verses 1 through 10, and that is the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration. In verses 11 through 13, there's a short paragraph on the Elijah John the Baptist connection, Elijah, John the Baptist connection. And then verses 14 through 29 is the famous story of the demon-possessed son and the troubled father who's trying to find help for his son and can't find the help in his disciples, but does find the help in Christ. And so these are probably familiar stories to many of you who are Bible readers, but maybe something new uh, to others. So let's look at the first story now, verses 1 through 10, and it's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, that's a a word that we use because it does say that uh, in one of the texts that Christ was transfigured. That means he was changed in his figure before them, and we'll see what that means here in a minute. I will be alluding to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, which are not in front of you. But with any story in the Bible, you want to compare what all of the accounts say to uh, make your conclusions, uh, even though we're just starting, studying Mark. Now, Mark, for those new, we see Christ portrayed as a servant, a servant. And that's what we want to see in him, and that's what we want to become as uh, this one of the four Gospels has the least number of red letters in it. So if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, those red letters, those words represent the words of Christ. You have the lowest number of words in red in the Gospel of Mark because the book is mostly just action. It's mostly him just serving people who needed him that he crossed paths with or that he went out of his way to help. And so I hope we are like Christ, the servant, that we will help pass, we will help people who just cross paths with our lives, not ignore them, and that we will also, second of all, go out of our way to help others. Jesus did both. Now it says in verse 1, And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, 
and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. A fuller being a cleaner. We would take our suits and clothes to the cleaners. That's what a fuller was. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only, with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man shall were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And so we have Mark's account of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, a story that's also found in the Gospel of Matthew and uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Now in Matthew's account, It tells us that he took them up on the mountain and they fell asleep. It says they were heavy with sleep. And so Peter, James, and John fell asleep. Now Peter, James, and John were three of what some call the inner circle of the 12 disciples. Jesus did some special things with these three. Uh, One time a maid was dead inside of a house and he didn't let anyone go in except these three and the parents of Peter, James, and John. Uh, went in. Another time later, he would be out on the Mount of Gethsemane, or Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would leave the disciples all in one place, but he took Peter, James, and John to a very, very special place where they could actually see him praying and agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and those three saw him, as it says, he went a little farther, and he fell on his knees and prayed three times, Uh, that God would help him and give him the strength to bear the cup of suffering that he would suffer the next day when he was crucified. And then here, so there's those three occasions where these these three men were privy, rather, to a special event and were the only ones that were able to witness it. Why, I don't know, but I, I do know that usually in every ministry, every fellowship, uh, there's some people that are kind of like the core of the church and and others that are disciples, and then there's others just on the fringe that maybe attend or something. And uh, the Lord needs some men who are very, very close to him, very, very intimate to him. And later on in the book of Galatians chapter 2, we will read about the apostle Paul and how he goes and sees the church at Jerusalem And he sees three men there that Paul said were pillars in the church, Cephas, James, and John. Cephas is Peter. And so these three that Jesus took with him and showed him these special occasions 
30-some years later, when, when Paul writes uh, the book of Galatians, he states that these three men were pillars in the church. And uh, so I want to encourage every man in this room to determine to be close to Christ and have every experience with Christ you can possibly have, and someday, if you're not already, be a pillar in the church. Be a pillar in the church. And that's what these three men ended up becoming. And so the time Christ invested in them was time well spent because they became great men of God in the church. And so don't waste the time that Christ is spending on you and investing in you and uh, make sure uh, that you become a strong man of God. Make sure you're saved and live by faith and become a man of God. And God needs you in the church uh, every generation. We need, we need men who will keep the church up and keep the church going. Uh, so the next generation will have a chance uh, to come in and get saved and sound doctrine and be built up in the faith and so our churches won't close down. So they see this and uh, they wake up. Uh, they, were, they were heavy with sleep. Matthew says they wake up and it says here that uh, the Lord prophesied that they would get a glimpse, verse 1, into the kingdom of God, into what it's going to be like when Christ has his millennial kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. What's it going to be like? And uh, they were going to get a glimpse of it in verse number 1 uh, when they would see the kingdom of God come with power. And so six days later, Jesus takes them up and he's transfigured before them. Now this is after they wake up from their sleep. And uh, the Bible says in Luke's account that a cloud, they entered into a cloud. In other words, a cloud descended like you might see if you've ever flown in an airplane or something. Uh, or been down to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. We've been there a few times, and the clouds actually come down, and they're on the mountain. So they're in this cloud, and all of a sudden they wake up, and they see Jesus transfigured before them, and he's talking with Moses and Elijah from Old Testament history, and he becomes as shining, exceeding white as snow, verse 3, uh, so no filler could white them. And there appeared Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, what were they talking about? It doesn't tell us in Mark's account. But in Luke's account, it tells us that Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah about his decease that he would accomplish at Jerusalem in about six months from now. And so that was what was in Jesus' heart. That's what he came to fulfill. That's what we call the gospel, that Christ was going to die for our sins outside the walls of Jerusalem, be buried, and rise from the dead. And that's what was on Jesus' mind there as he talked with Elijah and Moses. It has been observed that Elijah is a type or a picture of the prophets, Moses is a type or a picture of the law, and Jesus is a type or a picture of grace. And that's kind of what the Bible is, is, is the law and the prophets and Jesus being uh, the grace of God. Uh, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Verse 5, 
And Peter answered and said, Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Verse 6, for he wist not what to say. There's always someone in the crowd who has nervous energy and thinks they have to say something. And uh, Peter was that guy. He figured, you've got to say something here. And uh, so he just spouted off something ridiculous. What a horrible idea that would be to build three booths on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? Well, people would be trekking up that mountain on their knees to worship the booths uh, because people like to worship places and things. And my wife and I have been to Israel. We've seen people putting their hands on the, the, the western wall and, and writing out prayers and sticking them in the cracks between the rocks like that's going to do anything. Uh, thinking that's some magical place because those stones are still there from Solomon's day. And uh, so they think, well, this is, you know, some magical holy... No, they're a bunch of rocks. Uh, they asked one of them, what, what's it like? Or They said, do you, have your, do you get your prayers answered? And he honestly said, no, it's like praying to a wall. <laughs> At least he was honest. At least he was honest. There's no magical place to pray. You can go into any place you want to make it a prayer closet, get down on your knees and pray to God, and God will be with you there. So, Now this is the first verse where we have Spurgeon's notes, so turn over and look at verse 5, and this is what he simply says, Peter had enough wit left to wish to stay where he was, and sometime when we are with our Lord in the mount, we can only say the same. So Spurgeon gives him credit. Uh, for saying that, it's good for us to be here. And let's make some tabernacles. Maybe he just wanted to stay here. Wouldn't we all like to stay on the mountain? Uh, wouldn't we all like to stay there? And that's what Spurgeon was saying about Peter. But they were all sore afraid. Peter, James, and John, they can't believe what they just saw. Nobody else has ever seen the likes of it. And they wished not what to say. They didn't know what to say. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and I mentioned, uh, I believe it's Luke's account, says they were, that that cloud literally came over them, and they were in the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now you compare Matthew and Luke, and the whole saying is this, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. And so God was well pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. And uh, what a wonderful son Jesus was uh, to the Father and leaves us an example. It would be nice if he said that about us, wouldn't it? And suddenly, when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only with themselves. Now again, Spurgeon comments on verse 8, and he says this, Moses is gone. And Elijah is gone, but Jesus remains. And it is much uh, the same with us now. And we are content that all others should go, that we may have only Jesus. There's a good observation. Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, but Jesus remains with them. And uh, that's how it is with us. Another thing, this being a glimpse into the future kingdom... It obviously teaches us that we will recognize each other in eternity and in the millennium. I don't even know why such a question comes up, but it always does, you know. 
People always say, well, are we going to recognize each other in heaven? Nope, we're going to have no clue who each other are. I think the devil loves to just rattle us with, with what uh, Paul would later say to Timothy are called unlearned questions. You know, but any time, you know, Jesus said, someday you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom and your children cast out. Well, that sounds like we're going to recognize each other. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Elijah. So, anyway. Verse 9, and um, it says, And they came down from the mountain. He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man... Uh, till the Son of Man were risen uh, from the dead. Now again, Spurgeon has notes on verse 9. All this glory, and only three men to see it, and these three men must be silent about it, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. So these guys had to be almost sworn to secrecy for six months. How would you like to keep that secret for six months? Hey, guess what we saw? Yeah, believe it, we saw Moses. We saw Elijah. We saw Jesus transfigured like he's going to be in his future glorified body. We saw it. But then for six months, you can't tell anybody. And they didn't. Uh, the Bible is very clear about that. Uh, and uh, in verse 10, And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising of the dead should mean. So they kept that saying with themselves. They obeyed the Lord. Others we have seen in our study so far did not keep that saying. When the Lord would heal somebody or do a miracle for them or, or, or have a special intimate experience with them, he would say, be quiet, don't tell any man. And they would go out and blab it around. And they would oftentimes uh, hinder the ministry of Jesus Christ because crowds would throng him and he couldn't get to doing what he wanted to do. And let me just say this, there are some times where your experiences and my experiences with Christ might be so intimate, it would be best for you to keep them to yourself till you die, because people are very confused by experiences. We need to base what we believe, why we believe it, and our walk with the Lord on the Word of God, not on some experience someone else had. Do I know whether their experiences are true or not? I don't know. Uh, God can do anything, but boy, it sure confuses people. When somebody says, oh, I had a dream last night, and God showed me that, and, and they're like, wait, wait a minute, that, that, that doesn't sound like the word of God, and yet this person, it just confuses people. When we share out loud these intimate experiences that we may have with the Lord in our walk with Him, and um, you know who knows what that experience is or, or whatever, it's best kept to yourself unless it's established upon the written Word of God. Because it may have been an emotional experience. It may have been the pizza you ate last night. Uh, who knows what it could have been triggered by, a movie you saw or something. And so it's best that we just take these personal experiences and keep them to ourselves 
and uh, focus on main things, things that are written, the, the unchangeable word of God. There's so much emotionalism today in experience. Oh, I, I was in the mountains and I just felt God. Next thing you know, some of you are running to the mountains. Say, ah, this is where they felt God. I got to feel God now. No, you guide your life. He, he orders our steps in His Word. In His Word. And so watch out for these great experiences. And whether they're true or not for us, I don't know. This was because it became part of the written Word of God. Verses 11 through 13, we got a little bit of a story about the Elijah John the Baptist connection in Malachi chapter 4. And verses 4, Malachi talks about Moses. Verse 5, about Elijah. That's how the Old Testament ends. And um, basically, Malachi says this look, God's going to go silent now. You're not going to hear from him anymore until Elijah appears. And there's about 400 years of silence between the writing of Malachi and the writing of Matthew. And Elijah, Jesus tells us, as you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which you can't get it all out of Mark tonight, but Elijah is pictured in his coming by John the Baptist. John the Baptist and they understood uh, exactly what Jesus meant. Let's read Mark's account, verse 11. They asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Well, the scribes did know the Bible, and they knew what Malachi said. And he answered and told them, Elijah, Elias, verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. That word listed means wished. Whatever they wished, they did to John the Baptist. They cut his head off, a couple of evil women, remember that, as it is written of him. Now, notice that Elijah was going to be the forerunner, a type of the forerunner, of which John the Baptist was. In, uh, it's kind of funny, even physically, in 2 Kings 1.8 tells us about Elijah's appearance, camel's hair and a hairy man, and Matthew 3 and verse 4 tells us John the Baptist was in camel's hair and he's eating locusts and wild honey. Those guys must have been something else uh, to meet. But even in appearance, but spiritually speaking, uh, Jesus said this was fulfilled in John the Baptist. In uh, Matthew 17, I'll read this, verse 9 through 13. And they came down from the mountain. Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man. And the disciples said, When say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus said, Elias truly shall come first. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not. But have done unto him whatsoever they listed or wished or desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake of them of John the Baptist. Matthew 17 and verse 13. And so that's what that's about. By the way, what did John the Baptist do? It says here about him, Elias verily cometh and restoreth all things. All right? I mean, John the Baptist really set things in order. It says he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children. 
He turned the hearts of the children to the fathers. He taught, law- he taught lawyers how to behave. He taught Roman soldiers how to behave. He led people to the repentance of sins and baptized them. And, and he really prepared the people to meet Christ. That's what he did. We should be doing the same. Christ may come at any time. And we should be like Elijah and like John the Baptist trying to prepare people for the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now we have the story of the demon-possessed son and a lot of insights into spiritual warfare in verses 14 through 29. It's obviously we're not going to be able to go through this in detail, but I know many of you are familiar with this story. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw the great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. So this big, huge crowd and the scribes questioning with them. You know, it's not really in the crowds that we really hear from God. It's up on the mountain where we're alone. I, I, try, to, I try to encourage people to have some quiet time. God speaks to quiet people in quiet places like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here there's a big multitude, and they can't figure out what's going on. And so there's a big tumult. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. About verse 15, uh, Spurgeon says this on the back. He says, I think there must be some truth in the common tradition." that the face of our Lord Jesus still shone with the light of the transfiguration. Surely it was not an amazement at the mere fact of seeing him whom they had so often seen. But his face, I don't doubt, glowed as the face of Moses did when he came down from the mount. There is an attractive glory about Christ. So maybe that's a good explanation for verse 15 where it says they were greatly amazed. They've seen him for two and a half years. But something about him now greatly amazes him. Whatever, it doesn't matter whether we know that stuff on this side of heaven. And he asked the scribes, what question are you with them? Why are you questioning my disciples? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Notice on the back, Verse 17, Spurgeon says, There is no case so bad that if we bring it to Jesus, he cannot meet it. Amen? And so they bring this case to Jesus, and the Father is speaking up now in verse number 17. And he talks about his son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, that's the dumb spirit. And what a, what a description for a demon. What a description for a devil, a dumb spirit. In other words, he had such power over this boy, the boy couldn't speak and tell his dad what was wrong. And wheresoever he, the dumb, the evil devil, taketh my son, verse 18, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they would cast him out, and they could not. Devils are heartless. They take a little boy, they make him dumb, they're tearing him. He's foaming, he's gnashing at his teeth, verse 20 says. And straightway the spirit, that's the demon, tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. Verse 22, the father says... 
the demon often casts him into the fire. Do you think that left any marks? And into the waters. And so this demon's trying to get him to burn to death, trying to get him drowned in the sea. And boy, they do the same thing today. There's still religions today where they throw their babies in the water and throw their babies in fire. Child sacrifice has been around since the beginning of time and continues in America in the form of abortion. It's like the sacrament of Satan is to get people to sacrifice their children to the devil. It's amazing if you study the history of children and what Satan does to children in the Bible. And he tries to get them to be burned. He tries to get them to be drowned. He's heartless. He's heartless. You want to keep your kids away from him. And watch out what you're allowing in your homes that might be doors uh, to demonism, demon possession. This is boys, a young boy. And, and, and they go after them. You know, we, we, growing up, we used to tell bullies, why don't you pick on someone your own size? They could care less about that. They pick on the feeble and the affirmed, infirmed and the weakest. That's how they are. They're heartless. And uh, they're alive and uh, well today, and boy, we see it in some children, and we certainly heard stories about Africa a couple weeks ago, and the ladies that came from Africa, and the things that they saw uh, about demon possession. We're just, we should just be thankful that there has been so much presence of Christ, so much Bible, so much Christian foundation in America that we don't see this like they do in other countries. We really should be thankful for our nation every day. And for the restraint of the Holy Spirit that's still here uh, because of believers in Jesus Christ and the presence of the church and the righteous who are in authority. But uh, we're seeing more and more of this in America, though. And we're seeing more and more of this uh, as our country tells God, get lost. Uh, we don't need you. We'll make it fine on our own. Yeah. How are we doing? And one of the multitude answered, said, Master, I brought him unto my son. So he brings him, and, 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 and we see what the devil does. And look at verse 25. He, he doesn't let up. Uh, Jesus says, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter into him uh, no more. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. Now let's look at something Spurgeon said. Look at verse 17, uh, verse 19. <clears throat> I suppose our Lord's rebuke was meant especially for his disciples. Christ does not speak as if he were tired of his life and wished to get away from his disciples. But this is, way, is his way of saying how disappointed he is that these learners had learned so little. Unbelief is a great trouble to Christ. I never read that he said to the poor or to the sick, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? I never read that he expressed any weariness of human ignorance, or scarcely even of human sin. But when it is a matter of unbelief, then it stings him. And he cries, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? Often we must derive more pain than pleasure from communion with many of his people. How grieved he must often be to see their slowness to learn, their readiness to forget, and the difficulty with which they can be brought to live 
the lessons he so carefully imparts to them. So that's kind of a sad observation, but I, I think Spurgeon really nails the head here. He's, he's not tired of the sick or sin or anything. He's tired of the unbelief after they've seen two and a half years of miracles and two and a half years of Christ's power in casting out devils and healing the blind and opening the ears of the deaf. And then they bring this one to his disciples and they, the disciples can do nothing. And so he said, bring him to me. Verse 22, Spurgeon says the, the uh, father identified himself with his child. When fathers and mothers pray, they should use the plural as this man did. That is the way to pray for every sinner we bring before Christ. We must join ourselves to the poor soul for whom we are pleading. Verse 23, his note, in verse 22, the man said, If thou canst do anything, even though it was almost covered up, the Savior still fastened on the one utterance of unbelief. Jesus replies in verse 23, If thou canst. Jesus said to him, All things are possible to him that believeth. It is not if I can, but if you can. And so Jesus even tries to take this experience to increase the faith of this father. And so Jesus is always looking and examining your faith. He's always looking and examining my faith in every situation and wants to work on that more than the situation. He's trying to perfect our faith. And so he questions the man about when he used the word, if thou canst. God, if you can, Jesus says, no, no, let's correct that first before I help your son. I can. And so sometimes we don't get what we want immediately because the Lord's trying to work on our faith. He's trying to perfect our faith before he does for us what we, he, he, uh, we want him to do. It's our faith. The trial of our faith is more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire. Why? That it may be found unto honor and praise and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. I believe in this story he's more concerned about the condition of the Father's faith and the disciples' faith than he is about the Son, because he knows he can help him. It's nothing to him. But you guys... Now, I got a feeling through this, the Father's faith increased. The second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3 says that our faith can grow exceedingly. There's not a person in this room, including myself, that couldn't use more faith or have it grow more exceedingly. And so the Lord brings us into some things where He's going to try our faith. We say, we're saying, when's He going to do this? Well, maybe when our faith gets perfected. Maybe when our faith, that's what he's working on. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Here was faith, verse 24. Even though it was mixed with unbelief, Jesus saw the faith. It was a faith that made him pray, and the Lord Jesus found that faith. Some people won't even pray. Talk about a lack of faith, they won't even pray. The devil knew he had to go out, in verse 26, so like a bad tenant, he did all the mischief he could before he left. Satan often acts in this fashion. Just when Christ has come to cast him out, he drives the poor soul into deeper despair and perhaps into greater sin than he ever felt. 
than he ever fell into all his life. And so they're all looking at this and saying, he is dead. He's dead. Looks like the devil won this round. But Jesus, it says in verse number 27, took him by the hand and lifted him up. Isn't that precious? Boy, there's a sermon there, isn't there? But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. I think many of you have experienced that in your life, where Jesus lifted you up. After it looked like you were dead and finished, Jesus lifted you up. Amen? When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And so he exposes two faults that the disciples had, and they become better through this. They were faithless, no faith, no fasting. No faith, no fasting. They couldn't help this case. But I'm sure later, you read in the book of Acts, they helped a lot of people who were demon-possessed. Faith alone will not accomplish everything, Spurgeon says, verse 28. Faith must be accompanied by prayer, and prayer must be at least sometimes in special cases attended with fasting. Attended with fasting. Any of you like fasting? Any of you get up and say, boy, I just can't wait not to eat all day today. But you know, there's sometimes when there's some kids that are so troubled or some case that's so troubled that we got to say, Lord, I'm not going to eat today. I'm going to pray for this person or this medical emergency or this kid who looks demon-possessed or this marriage or this whatever. All right, we're going to sing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But let's pray first and those being baptized can be dismissed. My wife will go out with you. So let's uh, bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for the glimpses we have seen of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, today. What a Savior. What a God. What power. Lord, thank You also for the ministry of Elijah and John the Baptist who prepared people before the Lord came. May we do the same. God, help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We thank You for the mountain experiences where we can get alone with the Lord. But sometimes our experiences are so holy, give us wisdom to know when we should keep them to ourselves rather than confuse people with our personal experiences. And may we use the Word of God, the Bible, to direct others. Now bless the rest of our service tonight, Lord, this song, the message in it to our hearts, the baptism. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.